This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, and welcome to our next panel on getting a good night's sleep. This uh, afternoon is not usually the best time to speak about sleep, um, but I know our very excellent speakers will help you stay awake. I'm going to introduce both of them first, and then we'll get going. Our first speaker will be Dr. Ellen Lee, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and a staff psychiatrist at the VA San Diego Healthcare System. She is board certified in both psychiatry and geriatric psychiatry, and her research focuses on biological and social aging in persons with schizophrenia and healthy aging populations, specifically the links between inflammation, sleep disturbances, cognition, and metabolic health. Our second speaker will be Dr. Atul Mohatra, who is the Peter C. Farrell Presidential Chair and Professor of Medicine at UCSD and Research Chief for Pulmonary Critical Care Sleep Medicine and Physiology. His expertise is in the field of sleep medicine and critical care, and he devotes much of his time to research where he runs a large NIH-funded research lab, which has resulted over the years in over 250 peer-reviewed publications. In addition, from 2015 to 16, he was president of the American Thoracic Society. I neglected to introduce myself. I'm Sonia Coley Israel. I'm a professor emeritus in psychiatry, also specializing in sleep, sleep disorders, and circadian rhythms. Each of our speakers will um, speak for about 20 minutes. I'm going to hold all questions for the end, and then we'll answer all your questions uh, either individually or as a panel. So uh, without any taking any more time, I'm going to introduce Dr. Ellen Lee. Thank you so much, Sonia, for the for the warm welcome. Um, and thank you all for coming to hear us talk a little bit about sleep today. So today I'm going to talk about how to sleep better and feel better and how sleep affects our mental and our physical health. Um, my work has been supported in part by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health and the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. And I am a co-investigator in the UCSD IBM Center for Artificial Intelligence for Healthy Aging. And today I'm going to talk to you about what happens when you sleep, a little bit about insomnia and health, um, changes in sleep during the COVID-19 pandemic, and review some sort of basic sleep treatments, both for insomnia as well as things we can do on our own. So there's been a lot of attention in the media, especially lately, about how important sleep is for health. This New York Times article from a few years ago stated that sleeping more is the simplest way to drastically improve your life. Um, sleep deprivation, which affects about a third of all people, has negative effects on health and well-being. And yet, you know, it's hard to know exactly how much sleep is uh, enough sleep. This CNN article, um, again from a couple of years back, shows that even too much sleep can be linked to poor health. So ultimately, sleep is really heterogeneous among individuals. And sleep is related to health, but it's not clear for each person what is the optimal amount or type of sleep or how it impacts health for each individual. So this is part of why I'm so interested in sleep is that it is so personal and it's so heterogeneous and we need to learn more about how to improve things for each person. So first of all, what happens when you sleep? 
Um, well, let's start with how sleep changes as we age. So from infancy, we spend about 70% of our day sleeping. We often wake to start our days and our parents' days around 5 a.m. And then we grow into becoming teenagers who have phase delayed sleep. We end up going to sleep late, often spending a lot of time on sleep and waking up late. Um, given that schools tend to start on the early side, we're often quite sleep deprived and tired during the day. And then as we age into being adults, our sleep phases shift earlier again. We go to bed earlier, we wake earlier. However, most adults, especially Americans, do not actually sleep well. About 35% of Americans are sleep deprived, which means sleeping about less than seven hours a night. And about 50 to 70 million U.S. adults have a sleep disorder, the most common being insomnia. About 30% with short-term issues and about 10% with chronic issues. And unfortunately, um, those types of issues worsen as we age. Older adults have higher rates of insomnia as well as other sleep disorders. They have more frequent overnight awakenings and shorter overall sleep time. And about half of older adults will report having some type of sleep problem. So why is sleep so important? Well, why, you know, sleep is clearly a biological process that's key to development and health. Um, we've been, it's been shown to be important for promoting growth, regulating metabolism, heart and lung function. Um, you know, the purpose of dreams is not exactly clear, but that's an important function that happens while sleep. Um, sleep is important to solidifying memories, as well as to clearing toxins from the brain. Um, and that's been an area of increasing interest over the last few years. Um, clearing toxins such as amyloid and tau proteins, which are key in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's dementia, has been shown to happen as we sleep. Um, insomnia, obstructive sleep apnea, short sleep duration, and poor sleep quality have all been identified as independent risk factors for cognitive impairment and the development of Alzheimer's dementia and vascular dementia. Um, and we know that um, poor sleep is linked to issues with memory, attention, mood problems, as well as falls. So sleep really has a mechanistic impact on cognition, which we are still learning a lot about. In terms of insomnia, um, Insomnia itself has a strong impact on health. Um, so what is insomnia? So some of the major um, signs of insomnia include, you know, difficulties with falling asleep, staying asleep, um, or waking too early and not being able to fall back asleep again. And it causes clinically significant impairment or distress in at least one of these key areas, um, including fatigue or low energy, daytime sleepiness, mood disturbances, behavioral difficulties, Cognitive problems like impaired concentration, attention, or memory, impaired um, abilities to complete occupational or academic functions, impaired so interpersonal or social functioning, and it can also affect um, your caregiver or family um, functions. Diagnosing sleep apnea usually starts with a clinical evaluation with your um, doctor to rule out other medical problems that can interfere with sleep. Um, many times it can be helpful to get referred to a sleep specialist. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to track your nightly patterns of sleep with a sleep diary, um, looking at bedtime awakenings, your overall sleep quality, and the use of um, interfering substances like caffeine, alcohol, or medications. Um, there can be a number of questionnaires that can help to understand um, about these sleep symptoms as well as pre potential precipitating factors, lab tests to rule out other medical issues, and then even sleep studies. And the health consequences of insomnia are pretty broad. Poor sleep has been linked to metabolic issues such as obesity, 
heart problems, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, even immune dysfunction, as well as depression and anxiety. And some of this may be a little bit bidirectional in that sleep can cause these problems, as well as some of these issues can worsen sleep as well. Now, with COVID-19, we've actually seen many of these issues magnified in certain populations. Um, during COVID-19, about 41 to 70% of older adults in certain studies have reported sleep problems. And these sleep problems have been associated with female sex, um, having increased anxiety or depression, um, complaints of loneliness, either not working or being confined to the home, and social distancing measures have been shown to be associated with worse um, sleep. Again, however, though, the sleep quality during COVID-19 has been variable. So certain populations are reporting worse sleep quality, while others have actually reported better sleep quality. So again, it, it seems to affect different populations differently. And another interesting point is that good quality sleep is really important for optimal immune function. Even a single night of poor sleep can actually affect inflammatory biomarker levels, lymphocyte counts, which are a key immune cell in the body, as well as your vaccine antibody response the following day. And so one of the notes I remember seeing when the COVID-19 vaccine came out was that having a good night's sleep before can actually make the vaccine more effective. And chronic poor sleep can actually upregulate in a immune system activity and affect how leukocytes are trafficked or brought to different sites of the body to help with um, fighting off infections. So our work in schizophrenia bipolar as well as healthy adults have shown that um, a lot of the night-to-night -night changes or variability of sleep patterns can actually be strongly associated with inflammation. And we've seen that people have more labile sleep patterns where they sleep very short amounts one night and maybe much larger amounts the next night. So the changes from night to night are larger for those folks actually may have um, increased levels of inflammation or oxidative stress. And another important impact of sleep, um, in addition to the effects on immunity, the stressors of COVID-19 can also affect sleep in turn. So COVID-19 has created what was coined by a group of authors, including Smith and colleagues, um, as a connectivity paradox. So while um, the risks of social isolation and loneliness may be increased by taking further social distancing or isolation measures, um, you know, you're really balancing the COVID-19 infection risk against the risk of social isolation and loneliness. And this was important to us because we've seen that um, there's been increased prevalence of loneliness during the COVID-19 pandemic. And other studies have actually shown pre-COVID that loneliness is strongly associated with sleep problems. So we've uh, seen a number of studies that have shown loneliness is associated with decreased sleep efficiency, which is sort of less percent time sleeping overnight increased overnight awakenings, also called WASO or wake after sleep onset, longer sleep latency, which means it takes longer to actually fall asleep when you go to bed, worse sleep quality, and even having um, insomnia is associated with um, loneliness. Again, this may be bidirectional in that loneliness is associated with poor sleep and poor sleep is associated with loneliness. And in one of our studies um, of older adults um, in collaboration with IBM, we've actually seen that loneliness is linked with psychosocial functioning and other behaviors. Um, we found with um, that when we looked at reported sleep quality um, and loneliness um, here on the uh, x-axis, so higher levels of 
loneliness. Um, we're associated with higher scores on the sleep quality index, which actually indicates worse sleep quality. So we were seeing that lonely older adults had worse self-reported sleep quality. And when we put fitness trackers on them to actually assess objectively how their sleep was, this uh, density plot here shows data from 362 nights from about 39 older adults. And as opposed to showing the actual mean sleep, it actually plots um, the, the overall um, sort of curve of how they sleep over time. So each uh, individual here is shown by a line. The red, folk, the red lines indicate people who reported higher levels of loneliness and the blues are the individuals with lower levels of loneliness. The flatter curves are actually the individuals with more variability in their total sleep time. And we found that while mean sleep duration was similar between lonely and non-lonely individuals, so the average amount that they sleep at night, the actual intra-individual variability was higher in lonely individuals. Um, so it seems that this variability of sleep, which we've shown in other studies to be associated with inflammation and other negative health outcomes, may actually be worse in lonely people. And the reason why we're so interested in that is because sleep may actually be a, a mediator um, of how loneliness affects health. All right, just to close, I'm going to talk a little bit about some common sleep treatments for insomnia, as well as some general recommendations of how to improve your sleep. So focusing on insomnia, there's, um, there are a number of medications that people have been prescribed for sleep. So one common uh, group is called the Z drugs, which are specific um, medications that hit the benzodiazepine receptors, but are usually marketed specifically for sleep. You might've heard of um, Ambien or Zolpidem and other medications like that. And these medications um, on the bright side are best suited for acute issues and are often available through primary care doctors. Um, however, they're, it, does come with a number of side effects, um, as well as, you know, may not be useful for chronic long-term use. There's also a number of over-the-counter options that are, um, that are uh, marketed for sleep issues. You might've heard of Sequel or, you know, using Benadryl or Unisom. Um, there tends to be less dependence from those medications, but unfortunately similar, um, the efficacy often wanes when they're being used for chronic, um, for chronic treatment. There's also um, therapies that can be helpful. One in particular I'm going to talk about is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, this treatment has been shown to be safe and effective. It has lasting effects on improving insomnia. However, it does require a bit of motivation on behalf of the um, patient. It does take time, often six weeks or more, and then it tends to be less accessible in terms of finding therapists who are skilled in CBTI for, um, for different uh, patients. So the other thing that many people will talk about is sleep hygiene. So when you don't have a diagnosed sleep disorder, there's a number of different things you can do to try to improve your sleep. Um, one key is, uh, point is to avoid caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, or exercise around bedtime, all stimulating, um, for the most part, stimulating things um, that may make it difficult to fall asleep, but also alcohol, if you're thinking about it as a sleep aid, may make you drowsy in the short term, but it may wear off before you're ready to actually wake up. Um, however, on the other hand, exercising regularly is important for, um, for maintaining and improving sleep quality overall, as long as it's not right before you go to bed. Having regular meals can be an important way to sort of re-regulate your body to um, be sort of more aligned with regular circadian activities or circadian rhythms. Um, having regular bedtimes, even on weekends. Um, there's been some studies that show that catch-up sleep on the weekends is actually not um, associated with better um, 
cardiovascular health and having sort of that regular bedtime and wake time every day can be better for your body. I'm trying to schedule enough sleep. So at least seven hours of sleep can be very important. I'm having calming bedtime routines. So avoiding stimulating TV or stressful tasks right before sleep um, can help to avoid having anxiety or trouble falling asleep at night. Um, Maintaining a dark, quiet, cool environment, trying to avoid having a lot of clocks in the bedroom. And then, of course, using your bed only for sleep and sex. No eating, studying, TV, trying to avoid all these um, other associations of active things you might be doing in bed. Now, during COVID-19, there's a number of other things that have been shown to be helpful for sleep. Um, Going outdoors every day, getting the natural sunlight, um, managing the stress related to COVID-19. So practicing mindfulness, self-compassion and gratitude. Maintaining a daily routine, even at a time when things may be blending together and we may be feeling like we're in Groundhog's Day and every day is the same. This can be a real key part to actually provide definition and um, creating structure to our day. Another one is cultivating meaningful daily social interactions. That's been um, one area that a lot of patients have told me is a real challenge. They miss almost the um, just sort of the regular minor social interactions you might have at a coffee shop or, you know, on the way to, on the bus, on the way to work, things like that. And finding ways to cultivate meaning through social activities is important. Um, Another one is, again, providing structure, but maybe more along the lines of um, a longer term uh, scale is looking at how to celebrate milestones and actually plan for the future. And then the last, of course, is if symptoms are um, getting worse in terms of sleep, um, or even, you know, of mood and stress contributing to sleep problems, the key thing is to seek help from your doctors and getting evaluated to see if there are other things that can be done. One of the most important things I find about sleep is that sleep is so modifiable and treatable that it's important to consider that as a key integral part of your health. So just to summarize, um, sleep is a key biological process for the growth, um, maintenance, and for aging successfully. Sleep disorders are treatable. COVID-19 has affected sleep in many populations, including older adults, and that we can improve our own sleep through changing habits and rituals and other enriching activities. And I think it's important to emphasize that. And last of all, I just want to thank you all, my audience, my sources of funding, um, as well as our wonderful team at UCSD. Thank you so much for your attention. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to the organizers for having me here today. I'm going to talk about sleep and healthy aging. And thanks to the uh, organizers for having me. And uh, thanks to the audience for their attention through the lunch hour here. By way of disclosure, I was uh, an officer of the American Thoracic Society a number of years ago. <clears throat> I do have some industry um, connections there. I, I don't think are relevant to today's presentation, but I'll disclose them there for completeness. The vast majority of my funding comes from the National Institutes of Health. I'm going to talk about two topics uh, which should complement what Dr. Lee has just addressed. One is about sleep deprivation, and the other is about obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea is a very common condition, as we'll talk about. So uh, we put out this statement in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine a few years ago that was supposed to inform Healthy People 2020, which is a document the federal government puts out uh, to inform uh, healthy behaviors. And this is an official statement that made the recommendation that almost all of us require between seven and nine hours of sleep at night. There are plenty of people who think they do well with less sleep than that, but the vast majority of them uh, get into trouble with less sleep. There are two famous examples of uh, people that said they did well on 
short sleep and uh, one was Margaret Thatcher, the other was Donald Trump. You can draw your own conclusions about what sleep deprivation might do, at least for some individuals. People that do this work measure things in alcohol equivalents, how much do you have to drink to make your brain deteriorate versus how much do you have to be sleep deprived. You can see uh, over 18 hours of sleep deprivation. So if you wake up at six in the morning and go to bed at midnight, over the course of that 18 hours, there's some minor deterioration in brain function about on the order of one or two drinks. It's not a big effect, but it's measurable. But with 24 hours of sleep deprivation, you're actually legally drunk as far as your brain performance is concerned. So doctors in training would routinely stay up all night. And as far as brain performance is concerned, it's not ideal. Uh, so this is a complex slide, but let me go through it uh, carefully to make a couple of points. <clears throat> On the y-axis here is the Stanford sleepiness score. That's a subjective measure of daytime sleepiness. The y-axis here is the psychomotor vigilance task. That's an objective measure of brain function. So this is objective brain function. This is subjective sleepiness. And what they do is they bring people into the lab at University of Pennsylvania and sleep deprive them. So these are people getting total sleep deprivation. You can see they get more and more sleepy, not surprisingly. But with total sleep deprivation, there's more and more lapses on the psychomotor vigilance task, saying that the brain is deteriorating with total sleep deprivation. Again, not surprising. You sleep eight hours per night. Your levels of sleepiness are quite stable in terms of subjective sleepiness. Your objective brain performance is also reasonably stable with eight hours of sleep at night. What's more interesting are these curves. If you get six hours of sleep or four hours of sleep, your subjective sleepiness gets worse. Your objective brain performance was six hours with four hours also gets worse. But what's interesting here is the following. These curves have plateaued after a couple of days. So you have this, you ask this guy, are they sleepy? Yeah, I'm sleepy, but I'm used to it. And uh, that's pretty flat over the, the past 10 days or so. There's no hint of a plateau in either of these curves suggesting brain function is deteriorating while subjective sleepiness is quite stable. So the take home message from this slide is that we lose the ability to perceive how sleepy we are the subject of sleepiness is quite stable, while objective brain performance is deteriorating. We don't realize how sleepy we are, or how impaired we are when we're sleep deprived. The other thing that's interesting is that six hours and four hours look superimposable on this graph in terms of subjective symptoms. But there's clear separation with six hours and four hours of sleep shown here. So you can hear the conversation now. Somebody says, well, I might as well stay up all night because I'm gonna feel crummy tomorrow, no matter what. And that might be true as far as subjective sleepiness is concerned, probably not for objective brain performance. And so again, there's a dissociation between symptoms and performance as far as the brain is concerned. There are other health factors though that are important in terms of sleep. So this is a paper we published in the Archives of Internal Medicine almost 20 years ago now. This is one of the first studies looking at the consequences of short sleep. And this is looking at incident heart disease or myocardial infarction. And in the nurses health study back in 1986, they're asked how many hours do you sleep in a 24-hour period? And they answer the question here on the x-axis, the relative risk is shown here. So sleeping eight hours per night, the relative risk was one, meaning baseline risk. You slept seven hours per night, as far as sleep is concerned, risk went up trivially. With six hours per night, it went up about 30%. And with five hours per night of sleep, risk of a heart attack went up about 70%. Now, the first thing people say is, well, the data are confounded. Sicker patients will sleep less and sicker patients have heart attacks. And that's true. The nice thing about a sample size of 72,000 is you can control for whatever you want. We control for all the known covariates and these data are independent of any known covariates. It's not age or gender or depression or anxiety or personality or any of the things you think might be important as far as affecting sleep duration 
the risk of heart attack. It's not any of those things. And there's other subsequent mechanistic data that come out suggesting short sleep may increase the risk of a heart attack. If you're into risk equivalent sleeping five hours per night, is about on the order of a cholesterol of 250 milligrams per deciliter. So high enough you'd start a statin like Lipitor or some atorvastatin, some one of those kind of medications. So what happened during COVID was one of the things they asked us to address. And unfortunately, our labs are shut down for many months during the pandemic. And so a woman I work with, Laura Crotty Alexander, and I published this paper in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2020. But what we did was a Twitter survey. Why did we do a Twitter survey? Because our labs were closed and we didn't have any other way to get data. And so we surveyed people during the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, how much are you sleeping? It turned out people are going to sleep later, waking up later, but in aggregate, the sleep had improved by about an hour. And the reason that was interesting is around that time, there was a report in the New England Journal of Medicine from Kaiser looking year over year where the risk of heart attack had gone down about 50% at the start of the pandemic and nobody could quite figure out why. It turned out most things were going the wrong direction. People were gaining weight. People were smoking more. There was more stress, more anxiety, all the things going in the wrong direction. The only thing we could identify that had improved was sleep. And so we thought maybe the increase in sleep that was seen early in the pandemic may have uh, led to some improvement as far as cardiovascular risk is concerned. Is increased sleep responsible for reductions in myocardial infarction or heart attack during the COVID pandemic? Short answers are unknown. It looks like sleep duration is going back to where it was pre-pandemic now, but at least a natural experiment that's interesting. There's some data as well in terms of glucose control and glucose tolerance. There's a group at University of Chicago, Karen Spiegel, Ezra Tassali, and Van Cotter, where they'll take normal people and sleep deprive them, and they measure uh, things during sleep deprivation. So a perfectly normal, healthy person starts to show impairments in glucose tolerance, something called glucose effectiveness is a harbinger of insulin resistance or diabetes, and that's impaired in a normal person if you sleep deprive them. The stress hormones like the fight or flight, adrenaline levels, these things go up. Cortisol, stress hormone goes up as well, and that may be part of the problem. Slow wave sleep or deep sleep seems particularly critical. If you suppress deep sleep, people start to look diabetic. There are also data in terms of appetite regulation. So leptin is a hormone that's made by fat cells that tells our brain to stop eating. And the fatter you get, the more leptin you make it, and hopefully you eat less as a result of that to regulate your appetite. Ghrelin is the opposite. It stimulates appetite. And so what this group did in University of Chicago is they put people under constant glucose infusion. So it's not they're eating more or eating less. And they measured the level of these hormones in people getting either inadequate sleep with four hours per night or adequate sleep with 10 hours per night. You can see the leptin levels are suppressed and the ghrelin levels are increased with sleep deprivation. Both hormones went in a direction that be predicted to stimulate appetite. I'll say it again. Both hormones went in a direction that be predicted to stimulate appetite. And the reason that's interesting is that People believe that sleep deprivation may be a risk factor underlying the obesity pandemic. I'm trying to lose weight myself right now. I'm trying to sleep. Uh, the main point of this part of the conversation was that diet, exercise, and sleep are three pillars of health. And the dogma is if you ignore one, the other two will suffer. So three pillars of health, a diet, exercise, and sleep. If you ignore one, the other two will suffer. So Jeff Flyer, who was Dean of Harvard Medical School at the time this uh, came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine, wrote the editorial suggesting that sleep deprivation may be a risk factor underlying the obesity pandemic. When we saw that, we went back to the nurse's health study to see what happened to their body weight. 
You can see body weight on the y-axis and the year on the x-axis. The women sleeping five hours per night weighed more at baseline than people sleeping adequately. And then they gained more weight over time, over the 15 years, than did people sleeping adequately. Everybody gained weight during this period, including me. But the five-hour sleepers gained more weight, but on the order of uh, five or 10 kilograms or, or uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds uh, with five hours of sleep compared to sleeping adequately. There have been some randomized trials as well where they randomize people to adequate sleep or inadequate sleep when they go on a diet. And so this was also published in the Annals of Internal Medicine where they looked at uh, sleep depriving people going on a diet. Sleep curtailment decreased the proportion of weight lost as fat by 55%, eight and a half versus five and a half hours, and increased the loss of fat-free body mass by 60%. What does that mean? The amount of human sleep contributes to the maintenance of fat-free body mass at times of decreased energy intake, that is going on a diet. Lack of sufficient sleep may compromise the efficacy of typical dietary interventions for weight loss and related metabolic risk reduction. This is something I tell my patients. If you wanna lose weight, you need to sleep adequately, otherwise the diet doesn't work. I also take care of some professional athletes and they're also aware that exercise is impaired by poor diet or by poor sleep. There are also some data on coronary heart disease and coronary calcium. Uh, the short sleepers, if people sleeping inadequately, will have more coronary calcium buildup as a marker of hardening the arteries or risk of heart disease. So I'll summarize that portion of the talk by saying inadequate sleep has health consequences. Your mother was right. Impaired brain function is not surprising. We've all experienced that uh, with young kids or with jet lag or uh, during medical training or what have you. Increasing their data on metabolic and cardiovascular risk, and the data here are rapidly evolving. We didn't know anything about this topic 20 years ago. Okay, so I'm going to talk about obstructive sleep apnea as well. It's a very common disease where people stop breathing when they're asleep. So by way of background, these stoppages in breathing can occur during sleep. It's a very common issue, as I mentioned. I'll show you some data on that. It's associated with neurocognitive and cardiovascular sequelae. So people with sleep apnea don't think as clearly, lose creativity, lose memory uh, consolidation, and may be a risk factor for Alzheimer's as well. We're not sure yet. And cardiovascular risk, there may be risk of heart attack and stroke. And there's a reason we take this disease seriously. Risk factors for sleep apnea include aging, nothing you can do about that. Obesity, hopefully diet and exercise and sleep can help you with that. And then male gender, nothing you can do about that either. Okay, so I'm showing this slide for a couple of reasons. This is my most famous patient. It's not a HIPAA violation because he tweeted this to 3.8 million people. That's Shaquille O'Neal, who's a basketball player. I'm a big LA Lakers fan. He was playing for the Celtics at the time, but it turns out he was a Lakers fan as well when he, uh, he was growing up. Now, the reason I'm showing this is he had moderate sleep apnea at the time that slide was taken. He tweeted that, so I'm not giving away anything confidential. But he's an elite athlete. Uh, he's in incredibly good shape. He doesn't look that way on TV, but he's uh, uh, very cut in terms of his musculature and all that. And despite that, he had moderate sleep apnea. So my main point here is that the stereotype of an older obese man is simply a stereotype. I have plenty of skinny women and postmenopausal women and thin people that have sleep apnea that don't look like the stereotype. The other reason I show you this is my wife says he makes me look thin. So um, these are some data on the global prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. It's a paper we published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine about two years ago. We tried to estimate globally the number of people with obstructive sleep apnea. And it's hard because there are 197 countries and only about 17 of them had data. 
So we did estimates based on existing age, uh, body weight, gender distributions, tried to match on races and ethnicities and whatnot. And we came up with the estimate that there's about 936 million, almost a billion people worldwide who have an apnea hypopnea index more than five. That means they stop breathing or have a pause in breathing five times per hour or once every 12 minutes. That's sort of a minimal threshold for sleep apnea, but about a billion people meet that definition of sleep apnea. You have a stricter definition for sleep apnea. That is, you stop breathing or have a breathing problem 15 times an hour or once every four minutes. That's about a half a billion people worldwide that have that. This is a huge problem. And uh, whatever solution we come up with has to be scalable to that extent. Now, you might ask, who cares? Why does it matter if the people at home with sleep apnea, if they're not coming to see a doctor, leave them alone? You don't have to go impose diseases on people that don't know anything about it. The estimates are still that more than 80% of sleep apnea is undiagnosed and untreated. So we did this study as well in Switzerland. Raphael Heinzer is a former trainee of mine. We did this study, but also published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine six years ago now. We went into the community and did what's called polysomnography or sleep studies in people in the community. So these weren't people coming to the doctor or to the sleep clinic with a complaint. We went to them and did assessments on them. It turned out about 23% of women and about 50% of men had an abnormality as defined conservatively more than 15 events per hour. That is a breathing problem once every four minutes while asleep or 15 times per hour. So with that conservative definition or cautious definition, 23% of women and 50% of men met the definition of sleep apnea. So why do we care? Well, it turned out it was predictive of hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes mellitus and depression, all of which we take seriously. So the concept here is that sleep apnea is highly prevalent. You can't ignore it just because people aren't coming to the doctor. Um, and so that, that's why we take this disease seriously. Not all of them get cardiovascular benefit from CPAP. Why am I saying that? I'll explain that in a slide or two. But the take-home message so far is that sleep apnea affects up to a billion people worldwide. The numbers vary with which criteria you use and what equipment you use. But you need to think about this global burden of disease before um, uh, moving much further. There was this study called the SAVE study that was published in the New England Journal about five years ago. This is looking at CPAP for prevention of cardiovascular events and obstructive sleep apnea. What the authors thought maybe was that you could treat sleep apnea and prevent heart disease. It turned out it was a negative study. It wasn't helpful. And when this came out, there's all kinds of press releases saying, well, maybe we don't have to take sleep apnea that seriously. And perhaps that's true, but the, the study had, uh, it was well done, but there were some limitations in terms of drawing rigorous conclusions. The conclusion that was drawn in the New England Journal of Medicine was that therapy with CPAP continuous positive airway pressure for treating sleep apnea, plus usual care, as compared with usual care alone, did not prevent cardiovascular events in moderate to severe sleep apnea. And so you could say it's a negative study. And so in my view, we need better uh, therapies. People need to adhere to therapy. It doesn't work if it's sitting on the shelf. And so perhaps people need to use the CPAP more. And we need better treatments, which we're working on. We need to identify high-risk patients better, just a one-size-fits-all approach, giving every man in Switzerland a CPAP and expecting 50% of men in Switzerland to have cardiovascular benefits seems unlikely because they're not all at cardiovascular risk from sleep apnea. And we need more basic research regarding mechanisms, which is the main focus of my laboratory. But people often get a very dismissive attitude about CPAP, saying, well, the mask, the continuous positive airway pressure, nobody tolerates that. It's terrible treatment and nobody likes it. And that's simply not true. It got a bad reputation, deservedly, 20 years ago because it was clunky and it didn't work so well. 
It's gotten better. Still not perfect, but it's gotten better. So here's some data. There's a cloud where the information from the CPAP machines goes up to the cloud. We have more than 7 billion nights of data on the cloud now that we can analyze. There's a group called MedX Cloud, which is an academic industry partnership uh, between uh, several academic centers and ResMed, the company that makes the equipment. I'll point out I get no personal financial income from either MedX Cloud or from ResMed, but they did give a philanthropic donation to our university. So if you look at the blue guys here, x-axis here is time, y-axis here is cumulative percent of patients. The blue guys, about 70% of patients given CPAP were adherent with therapy based on Medicare criteria, about 70%. That's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good in terms of usual care. It's better than a lot of chronic medical therapies uh, that we give people inhalers and asthma or anticonvulsants and epilepsy. 70% for CPAP is pretty good. If you use modern technology though, patient feedback, so they get patient engagement, they get a thumbs up if they're doing well, they get helpful hints if they're doing poorly, then the adherence goes up to 87%, which is really quite good. And so a defeatist attitude about CPAP saying nobody uses it is really not appropriate. We did this study in 2.6 million patients looking at everybody who got a CPAP machine was able to plug it in. So it was all comers. And with 2.6 million patients, we're seeing about 75% adherence uh, with treatment. So this defeatist attitude about CPAP saying nobody uses it or nobody tolerates it is simply not true. So nasal CPAP is the treatment of choice. It certainly improves symptoms, improves blood pressure in terms of people with high blood pressure or reduces the risk of developing high blood pressure. It's transformative for some patients. I saw a patient this morning and said they can't sleep without it. And a defeatist attitude about CPAP is not justified. The data look pretty good. There's general acknowledgement that we need new therapies with ongoing research, and that's what we're doing. I'd like to stop there. Again, thank you for your attention. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to try to address them in the panel discussion. Thank you. We do have quite a few questions. If sleep is interrupted by joint pain, should you try to make up for it by napping or trying to go back to sleep and eventually get up much later? Sure, I can start from the psychiatrist's perspective. My thought is it might depend on the person, how impaired their sleep is, how sleepy they are the next day, whether or not they feel refreshed. Um, I think Dr. Ancoli Israel also mentioned that naps can be helpful as long as you're not having trouble falling asleep. So for individuals who have trouble falling asleep at night, sometimes consolidating all your sleep to not, uh, the nighttime can help. Um, the other big issue, though, is that the pain. And I think that's something where um, if you're not able to get adequate sleep because of pain, then that may be another important um, primary issue to address. Um, Dr. Malhotra, do you have any other input? Yeah, I agree with what you said. Um, we used to say physical pain worse than sleep, and that's certainly true. If you're in pain, you don't sleep well. But the reverse is also true. That is, if you sleep poorly, you have more physical pain. Their data in chronic pain patients, their worst pain is the day after a bad night of sleep. A woman named Janet Mullington in Boston will sleep-deprive people and measure their pain thresholds. And when they're sleep-deprived, the threshold for pain gets worse and worse, suggesting uh, poor sleep can worsen physical pain. So uh, Dr. Jeremy Orr is a junior faculty that works with me. And he's got, just got an NIH grant to study the relationship between sleep disturbance and pain, uh, which I think is an important area. All right. So let me also add that if one has pain and poor sleep, the best approach is to have both of them treated right. concurrently. Treat your pain and treat your sleep at the same time. Don't assume that treating one will fix the other. And sleeping later in the morning is never the right answer because that just makes the sleep worse and therefore will make the pain worse. 
So um, there have been some very good studies showing that cognitive behavioral treatment for insomnia in pain patients also has a positive effect on the pain. So I would encourage you to seek treatment for both your sleep and your pain. Okay, um, next question. Uh, there, there was a question, uh, one on trazodone and one on melatonin about the long-term um, benefits and effects. So um, Ellen, do you want to start? Yeah, I can start that? with trazodone maybe. Um, so with trazodone, there aren't that many long-term studies of how trazodone um, impacts. I believe the question was about sleep or cognitive decline. I did see a, a small study that, that came one was out. Yes, that was on sleep. So I think um, we do commonly in psychiatry tend to prescribe trazodone for sleep um, as a long-term medication. At the low doses, it doesn't really have as much of an antidepressant effect, but it can have a sedating effect that can be helpful for a lot of individuals. Um, the side effects for trazodone are pretty limited at that low dose, but we do worry about anticholinergic effects, which can affect memory falls, can make people a little bit confused. And so with older adults, we tend to avoid trazodone. Yeah. And melatonin, Atul, do you want to address that or? Sure. So um, just about trazodone, I personally take trazodone when I go on airplanes sometimes, particularly if I'm in the cheap seats, I take some, I take hundred milligrams of trazodone, sometimes some dry mouth, but basically it's well tolerated. We often say it's a lousy antidepressant because it's a pretty good sleeping pill. In terms of long-term use, to Dr. Lee's point, it's really not very well studied, but some patients on that. It's very important, though, to address underlying causes and the behavioral interventions that Dr. Nkoli Israel alluded to are critically important before going on long-term prescription medications of any, of any sort. In terms of melatonin, um, that has been more carefully studied in terms of uh, its effects. It's really not a very good sleeping pill. What it is good for is body clock issues. So there's a circadian system that's your body clock. And if you're traveling overseas or across time zones, or if you have a body clock issue with a, a delayed body clock, where you tend to go to sleep late and wake up late, melatonin can be quite effective in terms of moving the body clock and improving sleep by that means. But just as a pure sleeping pill, it's really not uh, recommended. It's really not very effective. It is, however, very safe. Um, study after study is, has shown that it is a safe um, I hate calling it a medication because it's it's really a, called a nutritional supplement. It's not FDA controlled, but um, everything else you said was correct. Okay, um, I'm going to throw one at you, Atul. Can you talk about the CPAP recall and also BiPAP versus CPAP efficacy and oral devices? Yeah, so um, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> These are complex issues, and I don't normally mention brand names, but in this context, I have to, to be uh, uh, accurate. Mm -hmm. So um, the recall was there was some CPAP equipment recalled, and the press releases came out, and Bloomberg News said, oh, CPAP causes cancer and all this kind of thing, which is obviously nonsense. So I think it's important to, to get the details correct. Uh, a company, Philips Respironics, makes uh, some equipment, which was recalled. There's some foam that's in the uh, sound uh, insulation of the CPAP machines that can break down and at least in theory can cause issues. When you look at the actual issues it's caused, they're pretty trivial. Some people get runny noses, some people sneeze. They went to a bunch of lawyers saying, could this cause cancer? And the you know, lawyers said yes. And so it led to a fairly draconian thing saying, oh, just stop using your equipment, which was perhaps not the right way to handle a, a health issue like that. 
So three and a half million people stopped using their CPAP and it led to a bit of a, a disaster. The good news is, as I say, I think the concerns with the equipment are, are theoretical. Certainly go see your doctor, certainly register your equipment if you think it may be on the recall list. We're in the process now of seeing a slew of patients who are getting replacement equipment from different manufacturers and different devices that aren't on the recall list. The good news is we published a paper last week in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine looking at the risk of cancer from different CPAP machines and the risk is essentially zero. So it provided some reassurance that if you do have to use your CPAP until you can get replacement equipment, I think that's fine. So um, I think the recall was probably handled quite poorly, but replacement equipment is on the way. And if you have to use something in the interim, uh, feel free. The other thing to be aware of is these cleaning products that are out there. Soap and water is fine to clean CPAP equipment. There's a bunch of these things you see on TV, like so clean and ozone cleaners and all that. Don't buy any of that junk because that's what led to the breakdown of the foam. And that's what leads to these issues. So if you have a so clean or a ozone cleaner, throw it away and uh, just use soap and water. If anybody wants instructions about that, it's readily available. I can, I can send you information. Don't buy any of that junk they try and sell you. In terms of the uh, different types of ways of delivering positive pressure, there is something called bi-level, which gives a different pressure if you're breathing in versus breathing out like that. Um, there's really no great evidence that one device is better than another, but it does vary with the individual. So if a patient prefers this device over that device, um, that's a personal preference thing. Again, work with your doctor. Don't go in demanding a particular device. Just try different ones and see what you like. We've published a little bit of work saying if you're on a CPAP machine, you switch to a bi-level, then that can help in terms of adherence. People use it more often if they switch, uh, but that's for select individuals that choose to switch. It's not imposed on people uh, unnecessarily. So yeah, there are lots of different ways of delivering the equipment. The take-home message there is if you're on a machine, you don't like it, go talk to your doctor, go talk to a specialist because there are lots of ways of troubleshooting with different masks and different ways of delivering the pressure that can be more comfortable. The oral appliances or mouthpieces were the final part of the question where uh, there are dentists that can make these mouthpieces that pull the jaw forward and prevent collapse of the back of the throat. The main point there is don't buy any of the junk they try and sell you over the counter or off the internet. Go to a certified dentist, uh, certified by the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. Make sure they know what they're doing. It's a customized type approach that fits to your teeth. And if you do that over time, there are some pretty good outcome data that CPAP and oral appliances have similar outcomes for select patients. Uh, and so again, talk to your doctor about it, but don't just buy something off the internet. Yeah, great. Thank you. There's a question. Um, addressed to Dr. Lee, but again, it could be open to anyone, about the effect of the Z drugs increasing the risk of dementia. I think that's an important topic to address. So Ellen, do you want to start? Okay. So I guess my perspective is that there has been some evidence that shows that chronic use of different Z drugs or sleep medications may be associated with um, long-term cognitive decline. But I think one of the issues with these types of studies is that the types of patients that are prescribed Z drugs or take Z drugs might be different than those who do not. So I think there might be a lot of individual level factors that may also impact that. And then the other part of it is we also know that people who have poor sleep or short sleep duration, and even the other end, too long sleep duration, have long-term um, cognitive risks as well, they may be more likely to develop dementia and cognitive decline. So trying to optimize sleep may be an important way to prevent dementia. And so some of the medications, you know, there may be a 
risk and a benefit potentially there. Yes, and I'll just add there's some more recent research that um, contradicts the original work about the Z drugs increasing the risk of dementia. It seems, in fact, that they probably do not. And again, I'll emphasize that second part of what you said, Ellen, it's that risk-benefit ratio. We know that that good sleep and having particularly our deep, slow-wave sleep actually helps clear amyloid and tau, which might decrease the risk of, of, uh, of uh, developing dementia. And so uh, you have to weigh the risk benefits between getting a good night's sleep versus whatever side effect you might be getting from the hypnotic. Atul, you want to add anything or should we move on? I think Dr. Akuli Israel is the world expert on that question, so I defer, <laughs> defer to her on that, but I agree with what's been said. Thank you. Okay. Um, there's a question here. Are there any neural markers, example, as uh, in EEG, ERPs, MRI, fMRI, that are particularly well-suited for differentiating people of healthy versus unhealthy sleep? And can these be used as neural markers, as predictors for developing dementia? Natul, I'm going to throw that one to you first. You know, the short answer is no. Uh, we don't have a, a strict marker that's, that's uh, going to predict dementia like that. We're working on different strategies to try to quantify things. There's a woman, Ina John Logic, that works closely with me. She's back in Boston, which is where I was for a long time. And she's published on uh, the frequency of arousal, so how often you wake up from sleep. That does seem to predict what we call memory consolidation. Memory consolidation means if we're having a conversation now, we may or may not remember it tomorrow. It turns out a lot of that is related to what happens during sleep. So we call it sleep-dependent memory consolidation, how well you remember things. Tomorrow depends on how well you sleep tonight. Turns out about 80% of the variance of what you remember tomorrow, we can predict by how well you sleep tonight. It's more important than your age or your gender or your race or your IQ or where you went to college. 80% of the variance, what you remember, we can predict by how well you sleep tonight. So sleep is certainly an important part about memory. And frequency of arousals or how often you wake up seems to predict that impairment memory consolidation or uh, impaired memory. And we know that obstructive sleep apnea, for example, can impair memory and treating sleep apnea can improve memory. But all that being said, I can't predict who's going to go on to dementia. We, we have different ways of looking at that now with these polygenic hazard scores, but we, we're trying to add to that using different sleep parameters, but we're not there yet. Right. Okay. We're going to go back to melatonin. Um, Atul, I think you mentioned how melatonin is good for jet lag. And so the question is, how does one use melatonin for body clock adjustment when traveling? Yeah, what I usually say is that's not a soundbite. It's something that's complex. And the reason is that the most important zeitgeber, that is the thing that uh, adjusts the body clock, the most important one is light. And so depending when you're traveling, where you're traveling, to where you're traveling, what the sunlight is like, you have to time things appropriately. So I can't just say take it at 5 p.m. because it depends on which body clock and where you're going and whatnot. So talk to your doctor about that or let's talk offline. I don't have a soundbite for you that tells you when to take it. Suffice it to say, if you time it poorly, it actually makes things worse. Right. So there used to be, I don't know if there's still, there used to be uh, things called apps for your phone uh, that are, were called jet lag calculators that worked quite well, where you could put in what time zone you were coming from, where you were going, and it would tell you when to get your bright light exposure, which is even better than the melatonin. Right. Uh, and then from that, you could also determine when to take uh, melatonin um, at the low doses, melatonin shall always be used at very low doses. But uh, take a look for these jet lag calculators, and that will help you answer that question. Right, next, 
Yeah, I'm supposed to say it's com if yeah. complex. If somebody says take it at three o'clock, they don't know what they're talking about. It has to be something that is timed carefully and based on light and based on where you are. Absolutely. Otherwise, in fact, you will make everything worse. Okay. Um, what about cannabis for sleep? Talk a little bit about cannabis. <laughs> um, I think um, there isn't as much research as we would like on cannabis. I think part of it is because cannabis usually includes both the THC which is sort of what perpetuates the high of cannabis versus the CBD, the cannabidiol, which is thought to mediate some of the more therapeutic effects of cannabis. And I think we're still in the infancy of understanding how cannabis affects a lot of our health um, you know, issues, as well as the psychiatric or other side effects of it. And um, I, I treat a lot of people with um, psychotic disorders. And so cannabis use is actually pretty common in that population. And I think that potentially the risks and benefits of cannabis are somewhat un, unappreciated. Um, so one of the unfortunate um, signs of cannabis is that it can actually make certain things worse. And in sleep there, I think chronic use can actually worsen sleep over time. And so I think, again, this is something we're still learning a lot about. It may not be the same for every individual. And so certain subgroups of patients may benefit while others may uh, have other side effects. The studies are ongoing. There are lots of them, but I think the data are not in yet. Atul, did you want to add anything to that? Or No, I agree. It was basically illegal to study until recently. And so the, the quality of the data are quite poor. I will say there's one report by Phyllis Z and David Carley out of Chicago looking at uh, Marinol or Dronabinol, which is a, a derivative of, um, of these things that showed some improvement in sleep apnea, but not enough to uh, really recommend it. And so I have some patients that swear by it and they say, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. I don't typically recommend it. Which, um, which is true of just about everything patients report taking. So, yes. All right, there were two questions about nightmares. One was about increased nightmares during COVID that had never occurred before. And is there any um, study of that that's been going on? And related to that, a second question about how do we treat nightmares? So I don't know who would like to take that, and then I can pipe in at the end. I can talk a little bit about nightmares in terms of psychiatric practice, because that is actually commonly a symptom that we may treat for um, related to anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder. And we do have specific medications that are helpful for nightmares, but nightmares can also benef um, benefit from just general antidepressant treatments that are used for general PTSD symptoms. Um, so I tend to look at them as a symptom um, that I am sort of chasing, but what their significance, I think one of the COVID-19 questions was, it was sort of an unusual effect. I wasn't sure if it was distressing or not, or disturbing. And so sometimes vivid dreams can actually be a side effect of certain medications. Like um, there's a medication we will often give for um, smoking cessation that sometimes that can be a side effect is having these very vivid dreams. Um, and so sometimes, again, it's a risk and benefit analysis on that. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. In fact, I would defer to Dr. Nicole Israel on this one as well. But I would say thinking about the underlying cause can be quite helpful. So some patients come to me with nightmares and they actually have post-traumatic stress disorder, there's some other condition like a withdrawal thing as Dr. Lee is alluding to. Uh, and then some have something called REM behavior disorder where they start acting out their dreams and they report that as a nightmare, but it's a very different kind of condition. So again, talk to your doctor if you're concerned about it. There's not a magic um, uh, no. pill that makes nightmares go away or something. 
There is a medication that's been studied quite a lot now um, that does seem to work well for nightmares. Um, but so again, the best thing is to talk to your doctor about it. There, there may be treatments available depending on the cause of the nightmare. There, there was some uh, information about Remeron or Mirtazapine, but I think there were some negative studies on that too. So. Yeah, no, it's uh, is, uh has been used a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, any information on implanted pacemakers on uh, affecting quality of sleep? The tool, I think that's probably for you. Yeah, there was a paper by Garrig, G-A-R-R-I-G-U-E, I think in New England Journal about 20 years ago that uh, was from France, where they looked at patients getting pacemakers placed and and some of them, the sleep apnea improved considerably. Like I think Dan Gottlieb wrote the editorial on that, but subsequent studies really haven't been confirmatory. There's some very nuanced uh, aspects of control of breathing that can be affected by, by pacemakers. And so it is something that can improve sleep quality in some cases, but it's not a, a recommended therapy at this point. There's something called a hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is a different type of pacemaker that's implanted and it pushes, it's electrically pushes the tongue forward at night. And that's a treatment for sleep apnea. And that got FDA approved in 2014, but um, that's for a very small subset of sleep apnea patients. Um, I think we pretty much got to all the questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Mahatra, Dr. Lee. I'm hoping all our um, uh, participants uh, found this very educational. I hope it helps you sleep. I wish you all a very good night's sleep tonight. And thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.